If you have primary school-aged kids or grandkids, make sure Vision Kids is part of their daily routine. Vision Kids! Vision Kids is a 24-7 online radio stream featuring the ever-popular Adventures in Odyssey. Hi, this is Chris. Welcome to Adventures in Odyssey. Plus other world-class radio dramas, kids' music and friendly voices. G'day, Vision Kids. Vision Kids is streaming now in the Vision app and online at visionkids.org.au. You can also tell your smart speakers to play Vision Kids Radio. If you don't already have the Vision app on your phone or tablet, you can download it for free when you search Vision Christian Media in your app store. Vision Kids. Another way we're helping the whole family look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Hey, get ready for a roller coaster over this next hour that may challenge many of the firmly held ideas you or those close to you have held about what's happening in a rapidly changing Australia. We'll be talking about freedoms and the way so many Aussies think about the freedom that we think we're getting through our democracy, through economics and through sex. We'll be asking some probing questions in the hour ahead like, is the idea of radical fundamentalism something we only apply to extreme religious groups? And what about the idea that what happens in a democracy when the people become evil or a people are under a mass delusion? Another question, is there a shadow world in our economy with unchecked markets driven by greed? And how is the sexual revolution delivering dangerous side effects for our children as adults turn committed relationships into exchanges, making people into mere commodities? Wow, if you've ever thought about those sorts of issues... Uh, you're on a different plane, but uh, you'll be able to participate in a conversation about those sorts of questions over this next hour. In all of that, we'll be discussing our freedoms, questioning whether freedom from all restraints is different to the idea of a true freedom as freedom for human flourishing. Well, our special guest this hour is Dr. Gordon Menzies, an Associate Professor in Economics at the University of Technology in Sydney, with an international research reputation and a PhD from Oxford University. He's a member of what's known as the Simeon Network for Integrative Christian Scholarship. He's an award-winning researcher and educator and a former economist at the Reserve Bank of Australia. His new book is called Western Fundamentalism, Democracy, Sex and the Liberation of Man. And so, uh, Gordon, wonderful to have you on the program today. A special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here with you. Let's talk about Western fundamentalism, because sometimes there's an idea that we have about what that means but you're taking things way underneath the surface and taking things a whole lot deeper than we ordinarily go. What are your thoughts about taking things down a little deeper? Thanks, Neil. I think that um, it's a bit like if you're driving your car and it seems to be going badly. Uh, One thing you can do is just rev it harder and hope you'll get to where you're going. But the other thing you can do is stop it, open up the bonnet and have a look at what's underneath. Um, Now, I think that in a lot of conversations that people have these days, 
There's a lot of uh, anger and argumentation about particular issues. But sometimes the people would be well served to just think a bit deeper about what the underlying beliefs are of the two people having a conversation. And I call that fundamentalism. Um, the idea is that everybody has kind of fundamental beliefs that drive a lot of their more incidental beliefs. So I think it's a really good question to ask, what are people's fundamental beliefs? And isn't it interesting because we usually align that idea of fundamentalism with various forms of extremism and, uh, you know, thinking about Islamic fundamentalism, as you'll hear, and there's a lot of people who would criticise even Christian fundamentalists, although there's no comparison with Islamic fundamentalism and Christian fundamentalism, but that word fundamentalism somehow rather aligned with extremism. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that... Um Everybody, it's, it's become uh, something that has, has become clearer over the last century in universities and I guess in philosophy circles that it really isn't possible to build a picture of life without having some bits of your beliefs uh, really foundational and things that perhaps you can't prove 100%, but they, they just are there. Um, I think that's a helpful way to think about um, people's beliefs. I use fundamentalism for that word. Um, sometimes people use fundamentalism as a sort of criticism of somebody who's they think is religious, bigoted, and perhaps violent. Um, but the irony there, uh, Neil, is that uh, when you look at the history of violent deaths in the world, there's very few of them that are actually uh, religious episodes. Do you, want, do you want me to tell you the top 10 killers, human-caused deaths in the history of the world. I have a chart of them in my I think this is a very, very important thing to discuss because whenever there is some sort of uh, mass issue, uh, violence, even war, a lot of people are very quick to say it's another religious war. And and you've actually broken down the fact that uh, religious wars are not the biggest killers. Give us an idea of this top ten list you've got. Sure. So I'll do it by um, by millions of people killed. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying that um, any individual death isn't an irredeemable tragedy. I'm not trying to trivialise religious violence in any way, and I'm sure that, that you wouldn't want to do that either, Neil. No. But, but in terms of the scale of effects, uh, it's striking. So no surprises, World War II is at the top with about 55 million deaths. Um, Chairman Mao comes next with 40 million deaths, not just direct killings, but a lot of his policies that involve people starving. Uh, the Mongol conquest of, uh, of Europe, um, that, uh, that was about uh, 40 million deaths as well. Then a really interesting one, um, three, actually three, um, three Chinese events that I'd never heard of before I wrote this book. Um, three episodes of civil war account for um, 35, 30, and 25 uh, each. And one of them, something called the An Lushan Revolt, which I'd never heard of, uh, which happened in the 700s, it killed one in five people in the world. It killed 20% of the world's population. Incredible. Um, but none of these except the last one, the Taiping Rebellion, were religious wars. Then we have the American... Uh, the colonisation of the Americas, Europe going into North and South America, that's about 20 million. Stalin is on 20 million as well. Slavery in the Middle East, 
is about 20 million and Atlantic slavery um, to North America and so on. That's about 20 million as well. Interestingly enough, World War I doesn't quite make it in. Of all of those rebellions, of all of those wars, only one of them has a significant religious component. The Taiping Rebellion in China was um, a man who had some kind of a vision and thought he was the brother of Jesus, garnered a lot of people to support him, and then there was a, a massive military response to that. But of all those um, episodes, none of them are primarily religious wars, and yet you hear people, they talk as though um, the history of religion is the history that has caused the major wars in the history of the world. And that's that's just not right. Gordon, let's come back to this terminology fundamentalism again, because if mm. we're not talking about religious fundamentalism, then you're actually including in there the thoughts of other groups. And uh, you're saying that they too are fundamentalist. And we'll get to what fundamentalism is is happening and existing in Australia today, but but the other groups and the causes of these huge, huge events that you've just described, what is this other side? Well, I think that um, the way that I use the word fundamentalist, which is that people all have fundamental beliefs that drive their other beliefs, I think is actually true of everybody. So the interesting question is whether you're a... Fun- the interesting question is not whether you're a fundamentalist, but what kind of a fundamentalist are you? So, um, of course, uh, communists would have had Marxism as their, their core beliefs and they would have had a disbelief in God and, and various other things. But Westerners too, I think, um, believe certain things done quickly and, and they sit right at the heart of their beliefs. So I'll tell you a story, Neil. Um, you, you mentioned that I uh, took my degree at Oxford Uni. I was a graduate student there. Uh, Gordon, just before you get into that, I can hear you're breaking up a little bit, and uh, I just had this uh, a little earlier. You might need to uh, stay in one spot, and I apologise for that, but uh, just to keep that clarity of signal. So uh, you're taking us back to some days at Oxford University. Yes. So I was a student there in 98 to 2001, and I went along to the debating society And I found that the debates were all very superficial. They just talked about political pragmatics, what the laws said about things, what the United Nations said about things. So I went and spoke with one of the leaders. And he said to me, the reason the debates are superficial is because everybody comes here with an uncritical belief in democracy Free market liberalism, that just means using markets as, ma- as, mo- as much as you can in society, and sexual freedom. And because people never question those things or never talk about the pros and cons of those things, they have superficial views about everything else. So I thought that was fascinating because most of the people at the U- Oxford University would have despised religious fundamentalists, but they were kinds of fundamentalists themselves. Uh, That is such a powerful point. In fact, as Christians, uh, we would even boast uh, that we are predictable because we have a particular Christian biblical ethic that we stand upon. So people can actually, they can tell what we believe, they know what we'll stand for, but they don't always have the same self-examination to know that they also stand for fundamental beliefs. And so what you're saying here, and even in your uh, experience 
at Oxford University, the fundamental beliefs that they held, and you talked about those around democracy, uh, free market liberalism and sexual freedom and those sorts of things that people take for granted. And that's something that's so widely spread. Did it originate in universities and then overflow into the Western societies? Where do you think that all started? Oh, I think the West has a very strong um, notion of freedom. And so all of those things are about freedom, I guess. Um, democracy is about freedom from dictators. Free market liberalism is about the government not making arbitrary changes to how you do trades and commercial um, interactions with others. And sexual freedom is about the freedom people uh, have about choosing their sexual partners. So, so this, I think, uh, ties up with the Western idea of freedom. But as a Christian, I'd like to say that there's probably a misunderstanding of freedom in Western society. I think that in, West, in the West today, most people think of freedom as freedom from, freedom from every possible constraint so they can do whatever they like and, as some people put this term, self-actualize, make themselves into whatever they want to create. Um, and that's a freedom from idea. Whereas I think that Christianity offers both freedom from and freedom for. So freedom from is important, but the worst thing that people face is sin. And Jesus, as you know, said that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son makes you free, you'll be really free. So Christianity has its freedom from, but it has its freedom for as well. We're adopted into God's loving family. We're offered a seat at his table and he tells us the right way to live, and it's a way of blessing and flourishing. Well, I think the West has got both its freedom from wrong and its freedom for wrong. Freedom from is not freedom from sin. It's, from, it's freedom from all restraints. And freedom for, well, you make that up yourself. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our special guest is Dr. Gordon Menzies. He's an associate professor in economics at the University of Technology in Sydney. His new book is called Western Fundamentalism, Democracy, Sex and the Liberation of Man. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. In fact, before we go any further, let's take a call. Jason is on the line from Victoria. Hi, Jason. Welcome. G'day, I'm Gordon, and also Neil, how are you? Very well, Jason. What are your thoughts for our conversation today? I firmly agree with Gordon regarding freedoms, and we, the rest has got it all in a muddle. Okay, muddle is an interesting way to look at things. I'll get a thought here from Gordon. Uh, is it just because there is a muddle and there is confusion, or is there something that is driving these forces of fundamentalism that are shaping society? Are your thoughts for Jason? Yeah, thanks for the question, Jason. Um, there's a great deal of people talking um, across each other's ideas, a great deal of arguments. You just have to open a Facebook page to look at that. Um, yeah, so there, I think there's an enormous amount of confusion. And I think um, part of the confusion can be cleared up by, by just asking people um, gently and respectfully, just probing them to see what their, their basic ideas are and, and what, what lies underneath their views about a range of issues. I think that um, uh, as a Christian, I'd say that 
we have a great, we're wonderful tools to do this. We can get to know people who are different to us, who think differently. We can uh, respectfully talk with them. And if they ask us a question we can't answer or can't think about, we can always talk to another Christian who's had an experience of answering that question. But yes, I I agree. I think um, there is a lot of confusion. And if you find yourself stuck in a conversation that's going nowhere, ask the other person, what do you think you'd have to change about your basic beliefs to agree with me? And I'll ask myself the same question. Well, that's a wonderful, uh, humble place to be in not being so argumentative uh, that you somehow rather divorce yourself from the ideas on the other side. That's a, a wonderful way to have a conversation. Jason, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Gordon, let's move to these three areas that you tackle in your new book. Let's start, and we won't have a lot of time to... All of these could be hour-long conversations on their own, but let's talk about (laughs) democracy. If we're talking democracy, um, what happens in a democracy when the people become evil or people are under a mass delusion. Uh, What are your thoughts for issues around this issue of democracy? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that I'm I'm a great fan of democracy. One of the things I really love about it is that when everybody gets a single vote, it's an affirmation of the God-given dignity and equality of everybody. And I I really respect that about democracy and it's, it's the best system I've ever heard of in politics. But in order to make the most of something that's good, you you work out what it's good for and what it's not good for. Now, what democracy is really good about, good for, is affirming the equality of people, as I just said a moment ago, with the one person, one vote. And it's also good for stopping a small minority pressing a majority. Right? So it's really good for that. But it can't do two important things, Neil. It's not possible to uh, ask democracy to automatically protect the weak. It won't do that. Um, If the majority of the population are quite happy to have a society where a small group of people, they won't have a lot of votes, are badly treated, then that can happen. Um, Hitler was brought to power mostly by a democratic process. He did a few things at the end, but he became very powerful under a democratic system, even with all of his... uh, hatred policies. So I think democracy can't st- can't help protect the weak if the majority doesn't want to do that. And of course, as you say, the, the majority can be deluded. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, in my opinion, um, uh, some of the end-of-life laws that are going through around the country now are flawed from a Christian point of view, then uh, they're displeasing to God. And and they actually combine two concerns that I have about mass delusion and about not protecting the weak. So democracy is a great system, the best system I can think of, but that doesn't mean that it can do everything. All right, you've pointed out a weakness in democracy, and it may be a great system, gives us all an equal vote, but it doesn't always have the power to protect the weak, especially if there is some level of mass delusion. And uh, really wonderful to point to that whole issue around end-of-life issues and beginning-of-life issues as well. Hey, uh, yeah. we'll, we might be able to enlarge on that. Let's see if we can touch on these main points that we began to talk about. Uh, you have a chapter on economy. Now, you're an economist. Mm. Uh, what's the main mm. point of your chapter on economy? Yeah, look, I think that um, uh, unlike democracy, 
our economic system is not set up to affirm the inherent equality of everybody. So while as an economist, I understand and support the way that our economic system encourages uh, hard work and effort and rewards people partly for that. It also rewards them for, for natural giftings and all sorts of other unearned advantages. But it does uh, work quite well in terms of creating wealth. Um, but it doesn't have an automatic protection of everybody and it doesn't have an automatic protection of the weak or it doesn't automatically affirm that everybody is equal in God's eyes. I think of um, Proverbs 38 and 9 in this context, uh, Neil, where uh, the writer says, give me neither riches nor poverty, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Why I may become, I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So there's an interesting verse. It says that being too rich has its problems and being too poor has its problems. And a completely uh, free economic system, we, which we don't have in Australia, but a completely free economic system where there was no attempts to make very rich people take responsibility for the rest of society through taxes and where very poor people could sink into dire poverty and be forced to steal. I don't think that kind of an economic system is, is honouring to God. Gordon, let's touch on the chapter you've written about sexual freedom. Uh, on this program, yeah. we've talked about the sexual revolution that's been going on over a number of years. Uh, you're talking about uh, the sexual revolution and sexual freedom uh, along the lines of what happens there where there's what you call a relational commodification. Uh, give us some insights into what you mean by that. Yes, thanks, Neil. I'm contrasting that with the standard narrative of the sexual revolution. The standard, you might say, progressive narrative of the sexual revolution is it's all about um, people and groups that have been mistreated and marginalised, gaining their freedom, and it's it's seen as a sort of um, path to social justice. That's that's the um, narrative that uh, is often put forward for the sexual revolution. Now. While there might be some truth in that in some instances, I see another side to the sexual revolution, which is a, an uglier side, which is that it's turning relationships into a kind of market where things, I beg your pardon, where people become like things. I talked about a car when I started talking with you about something going wrong with the car. Well, when your car gets too old or worn out, you just sell it or you get rid of it and um, you send it off to the wreckers. Now, Unfortunately, I think the sexual revolution comes with a kind of market mentality that people are things, and when they get too old or they don't suit you anymore, you get rid of them. Uh, and that's a tragic way uh, for people to treat each other. And I think that the sexual revolution has encouraged that. And don't think I'm just talking about pornography here, because, yes, pornography is an evil. It's, it's an example of... Um, commodifying people, turning them into commodities and buying and selling their images and so on, divorcing, divorced from the people themselves. But I'm also talking about how there's an increasingly disposable ethic when it comes to relationships. Okay, would we include even some of the uh, the social meeting dating type sites uh, that that we'll often think of as uh, as being a benefit to our uh, our ability to meet others and uh, thinking of uh, Tinder or any of the other sort of sites that sometimes you'll hear about, do they commodify people as well? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, look, I think that uh, there's a range. So some of the dating sites are understood to be for casual meetups and, frankly, casual sex. Um, some of the others are more careful, and they, they, it probably depends a lot on how much detail or care is given to the person's profile. So I know of one uh, Christian dating site. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. It might be advertising. Yeah, no, but, that's um, fine. Yep. Oh, there's a dating site called Christian Connection, and it, it has um, quite a lot of detail on people, including their walk with the Lord, their church commitment, and so on. And that's, I think that's a, a good way uh, to hear people's story and to get a picture of a person before you meet them. But as you say, there are other um, sites which are more um, superficial and do indeed just turn people into commodities. Because Gordon, we might, really see we might pick up some more of this after the news. Gordon Menzies, let's talk about this word fundamentalism again and perhaps bring this into an easily understood context because so many listeners will have been following closely because perhaps they had no choice. The American presidential <laughs> election. And uh, you've got two sides. You've got the Democrats and you've got the Republicans, and they both represent very different views on life. Does this illustrate this idea of fundamentalism that you're tackling in your book? Yes, I think it does. I think that um, uh, in America and in many other countries in the world, the left and right of politics value certain things differently. So um, uh, the left side of politics uh, is very concerned about justice as they understand it, and about um, kindness as they understand it. Uh, they are not always the same ways that I would think of justice and kindness as a Christian, but undoubtedly that is their, their aim. Uh, whereas the, the right side of politics cares about those things as well, but it cares about a range of other things like the sanctity of life and so on. And you see people talking to each other in this context and getting, very, getting into very heated arguments. Sometimes it'd be good just to back off a little bit and and ask the question, as I said to you last time, what would someone I'm arguing with have to change about their beliefs to agree with me? And what would I have to change in order to agree with them? Sometimes we talk about the differences between the left side of politics, say the Democrats, and the right side of politics, the Republicans, and we talk about a culture war. The culture war raging here in Australia as well. But you've got some thoughts on winning culture wars and the idea that winning doesn't necessarily mean overpowering your opponent. How do you think we should approach this idea of being in the conversation about the different sides of the argument? Yeah, as I said before, I think, um, Neil, that it's a great thing. We have a great opportunity if we're Christian people to um, get to know people who think differently to us who may not be Christians and to, um, to get to know them on a friendship basis. And uh, when the time comes, if an if a issue comes up and there's a discussion, it's really good to, to try and listen and to try and understand what deep beliefs um, drive a person's uh, surface beliefs. I do this in university. I'm, I'm a Christian, but of course it's not appropriate for me to, to directly um, talk about Christianity in the classroom unless it's in the context of other things. Um, so here's how I do it. Um, I have a tutorial, which is one of my favorites, where I ask people whether they agree with human breeding to try and reduce our impact on the planet. So most of my students 
uh, would be very favourably disposed to environmental issues. And one of the ways you could um, reduce environmental damage in the world is either for there to be less people or for people to be smaller. So I asked the question, who would agree with a human breeding program to make people midgets? And um, not surprisingly, uh, Neil, and I'm sure most of you, your listeners would think that's a, a bad idea and they don't agree with it. So then I asked them, how many people here believe in breeding animals? And about half of them do. And so I say to those people, why is it okay to breed animals but not okay to breed humans? And that leads to a very interesting conversation uh, and they don't really know how to answer it. And in the end, I put it to them, you think people are more valuable than animals, don't you? And they said, yes. And then I asked them why. And, uh, and there are three reasons that come out of this, Neil. The first reason people give is that really we're not more valuable than animals and it's just an illusion just like dogs might look after other dogs, we look after our own species, but it's an illusion. The other answer is a kind of answer that says we're more valuable than animals because of our capabilities. We're, we're smarter, we can do more things than them, so we're more valuable. And the third answer is a Christian answer or a religious answer which says that we are special, we are created by God and we have a special place in this world above animals to look after the world, to steward it for sure, but we are uh, special and set apart. And as I talk with students about this, uh, I can talk about all sorts of basic ideas they have without it being an argument. Now, that's just one example, but um, interestingly enough, uh, the, last, the last step in that is I say to the people who say that we're more valuable than animals because we have greater capabilities than animals, I ask them this question. I say, if that's true for people versus animals, is it also true for people versus people? Are people who are more capable or people who are conscious um, worth more than someone who's unconscious and sick? And that gets to be a very interesting conversation. So that's something I can do in a university, but there's all sorts of things you can do in an ordinary conversation just to, to ask people, listen, listen really carefully. Why do you think this? What basic beliefs do you have about this? Interesting too, and I would love to pursue a longer conversation and we might have to make a date on another day, even around some of those thoughts that you're bringing out so beautifully, Gordon. But the reason why you can't be so open about your Christian faith, even as a university lecturer, is because there's a very secular way of thinking in our institutions. And secular thinkings become like a new religion. And people like to think that they're free from religion, but in actual fact, they just move from one religion to another. What are your thoughts around this idea that the way people are thinking today, secular thinking, is a new religion? Yes, I think that the idea of a teacher... Uh, in a university or indeed in a school, giving the people that they're talking to freedom to form their own views and outlook and so on and not to misuse their power. I think that's a good idea and I respect that idea. But what you're saying is right, that I think that um, culture generally is shifting in a way where what's called uh, progressive thinking is increasingly secular thinking. And I think a fundamental belief underneath this is that we can ignore God and create ourselves and create our world in the way that we want to and that we choose to do so. So I think it is a kind of um, 
an outlook or a religion which has that as a very fundamental belief. Um, this is not a big thing in culture yet, um, but there's even a movement called transhumanism, which is about um, making people, you know, to be have capabilities and so on that they wouldn't naturally have. And that I think is a similar sort of thing of of not really having an idea of a normal God-given level of functioning or a normal good life that God affirms, but to seek to create our own lives in whatever way we want to. I love your thinking on the even the motivation for your book, how to help people have a better conversation, how to start a better conversation, and simply asking those really uh, those really obvious questions. You know, people more valuable than animals. Uh, secular thinking is that uh, there's an illusion in place there. But when you get to the people and the people versus people, the idea that people are created in the image of God, and that flies in the face of secularism, which wants to deny that there even is a God. Are people open to talking about that third uh, element in your uh, discussion there in, and bringing God into the conversation? I mean, is this is this like if you're looking for a valuable truth in how to bring the spiritual, biblical, Christian aspect into the conversation, you have to be able to bring in there that people are created in the image and likeness of God. Is that a simple way of actually bringing that, the, the whole issue to a head? Yeah, I think I think it I think it is. So even if you don't agree with, if you're talking with someone and they start talking about human rights or the rights that people have, even if you don't think they've got it quite right, what genuine human rights are, um, even if you think that some of those ideas are not not the best or not right, you can still ask them, well, where do human rights come from? Why is it that everybody has to be treated with a certain basic dignity? After all, it doesn't happen in the animal kingdom, which is just another way of circling back to that that basic thought that we do not uh, affirm people behaving like animals. It's actually an insult to call someone an animal or say that they behave like an animal. Now, why is that? Why do we think we're so different to animals if you take God out of the picture and you take him and his plans for human flourishing entirely out of your thinking. Uh, I think that's a very good question to ask someone who's, uh, who believes in justice. You could ask, why is justice important? Now, as you know, Neil, um, many of these ideas in the West have been uh, deeply enriched by Christian thinking. Uh, the, a lot of uh, ideas that we take for granted in the West have a strong Christian heritage attached to them. And so um, that can go in a number of ways. You can talk about that Christian heritage, or you can just ask them, well, are you really being consistent in caring so much about justice and rights if your view of people is that we're merely animals? Do you find, Gordon, that when you're in those sorts of conversations with students who are thinking deeply about history Mm. and about the present and about ethics and those sorts of things, does the light ever just all of a sudden switch on? that human rights start with Christianity and that justice actually starts with Christianity. You allude to the idea that uh, these things have, uh, you know, a very firm foundation in our Christian history. They have an obvious foundation, don't they? Yes, they do. And, and of course, as we know, through common grace, um, people who aren't Christians have uh, some 
knowledge of what's right uh, in in them in their hearts, and so so these are things that people have as common intuitions. Um, does the light ever go on? Well, it depends. Look, I would say, Neil, in my experience at university, two things are happening. On the one hand, I meet more and more people who know nothing about Christianity and know nothing about God. A bit like uh, 10 or 20 years ago, students from mainland China that I used to speak with, they knew nothing. They were a blank slate and they really wanted to hear and everything you told them was the first thing they were hearing about God and that was exciting. And I'd say it is an exciting time. More and more people are like that. They just don't understand. But of course, the other side to it is there's a very strong um, uh, pressure uh, for Christians to support all sorts of causes, uh, progressive causes that that they feel in conscience they can't support. And so that is a more difficult environment. So I'd say, if you're asking me about my experience in, in universities, it's both better and worse. <laughs> it's better because you may be the first Christian speaking an intelligent word about Christianity to somebody, and that's exciting. It's worse because some people will write you off if, if you don't support their particular cause. Gordon, let's talk about this idea of addressing what people consciously believe, because uh, here we are as Christians saying, we think we know what we believe. We've got some foundation. And as you're beautifully expressing some of those things, we can say, yes, we know that there is a God. We're created in his image and likeness. That's what gives us value as human beings. And therefore, we have a foundation for human rights and for justice. And these things actually come from a biblical Christian foundation. These things have shaped our Western society. So this idea of consciously believing that is very powerful. And so when we're talking to people who are, as you say, off on all sorts of tangents on what they think is a good cause, trying to be free from any sort of way that they might be regulated in behaviours, this idea of helping people to become consciously believers of what they actually are believing. Is that a, a useful thing to be able to do? Is I mean, you can be pointing out people's faults in what they believe, but is it better to help people discover those uh, issues in their own belief system? Yeah, that's a, that's a great insight, I think, Neil. I think that um, a lot of people hold their views as though they are common sense, that in the sense that if something comes up, they just respond to it and it just seems obvious to them. Um, now, I think that uh, Christian, as Christians, we can always, when we're conversing with people with gentleness and respect, as Peter says, um, we can always um, ask them. There's a whole there's a whole theory of evangelism called questioning evangelism. I'm sure you've heard of it, where the art is to ask the right question. And so, um, I think you can get a long way by asking people about their beliefs. And then putting a question to them, which shows that they're not really carrying through their beliefs. So I gave an example of that a moment ago when I said, if people believe that um, we're more valuable than animals because we're more capable, and they think that's a firm basis for human rights, they are wrong. Because within any human society, there are people who are more capable than others. And are we really saying that that capability makes that person more valuable than somebody else? Now, just by putting that question to somebody, uh, they may have never thought of it before. And and you ask if the lights go on. There's certainly some very interesting expressions in my students when I ask that question. 
Gordon, let's come back to the question I've been asking listeners today, and uh, I suspect there'll be lots of people responding after our conversation today, but the question I've been asking on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio is, how do you think the secular idea of freedom from all restraint will shape the next generation? So I'm going to ask you to put your uh, your uh, prediction cap on here. What does society look like over the next 10 years uh, under these under these ideas that you're expressing here and freedom from all, all restraint? Uh, I mean, yes, there is a major movement, uh, Christians, who are endeavouring to influence the way that people are thinking about freedoms and uh, freedoms are you know right at the center of of uh, where governments are still uh, you know uh, pondering what to do but what does the next generation look like under this idea of freedom from all restraint what are your thoughts um look it, it's a big um it's a big ask to forecast the future as you know neil who would have thought uh, 18 months ago that 2020 would be like it is, it's just. Uh, I think God often humbles us with our forecasts of the future. But um, look, one of the things I would say is that the only enduring revolution of the 20th century was the sexual revolution. So, Marxism came and went as a political force. It still has um, various influences, but it, it really came and went as a, a world-changing force. Uh, but the revolution that came and stayed was the sexual revolution. So, um, uh, I hope not, by the grace of God, but um, as time moves forward, we may see um, more and more um, attempts to find uh, freedom to define identity in terms of um, completely free um, sexual practice and completely free sexual identification, um, dissolving male-female gender, these kinds of things. So, I um, I suppose that may be... Uh, one area where I could see secular society moving, and and that's I don't think that's a very brave prediction. You already see that now. Um, yeah. Interestingly, as sexual commodification uh, kicks in in a more significant way, and ordinarily what we're seeing here is governments are legislating that sexual commodification coming into effect. What that has as a, a way of of counter well, what's not what's on the other end of that, of course, is uh, is that when it becomes legalized, the Christian expression becomes outlawed. I wonder whether there's any uh, thoughts there you've got for the seesaw back and forward or or as one way gets uh, top heavy say the sexual commodification that that Christianity might well be even more outlawed what are your thoughts there Oh boy that's a, that's a good question Neil um I suppose that um I suppose that it is getting it's getting far more difficult for Christians to um for Christians to proclaim what they believe, but let's um, let's stand back and and reflect on the history of God working in the world since Christ came. Uh, very few of God's people have lived in um, liberal Western democracies. When you look at the whole span of history, um, I don't know the exact percentages, but many, many, many people, including all the people the New Testament was written to. We're not living in an environment of freedom of expression. So I think it must be the case that God has allowed us always to express our faith by godly living, 
and only sometimes has have the circumstances allowed us to to publicly proclaim and be part of public conversation. So I wouldn't, even though I, I admit I find the times we're in concerning, I find it difficult to have freedoms taken away. I think that in modern Australia, although we're not persecuted, I think that your employment can be risked if you hold certain views, if you hold Christian views on some things. Um, I think although that's frightening and I, I share the, the fear of that, I think that um, God is in control and that uh, we always should aim to live out by example what we believe as Christians and no one can take that away from us. Well, Gordon, it's been just invaluable hearing your insights into these really important issues today. And uh, we have come to the end of our conversation. Time has run out. But our guest has been Dr. Gordon Menzies, an Associate Professor in Economics at the University of Technology in Sydney. And I mentioned, too, that you're a member of the Simeon Network for Integrative Christian Scholarship, uh, researcher, educator, your new book is Western Fundamentalism, Democracy, Sex and the Liberation of Man. Now, people can get a hold of your new book, Gordon, uh, when they go online at Amazon. Uh, if you're in the vicinity of a Koorong bookstore, you'll be able to get it at Koorong too. So go to Amazon. You can simply type in Western Fundamentalism and you'll find how you get a hold of the book by Dr. Gordon Menzies, M-E-N-Z-I-E-S. So either Amazon or Koorong. Uh, Gordon, just great getting your insights and uh, no doubt, and uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get a chance to have you on another topic on another day, but uh, wonderful thoughts. Thank you so much for taking some time to share those with listeners today on 2020. Thanks, Neil, and thanks to the listeners too for tuning in. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 